Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Brian Lorenzo. Thanks, Brian. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got Melissa Hunter back on the show. This is her third time. Since the last time we spoke with her, she's got a handful of incredible writing credits. She wrote on She-Hulk. She wrote on Santa Clarita Diet. She wrote on Home Economics. She also was the onset writer on Shotgun Wedding, which is a thing that we dig in on because I don't think that we've had an onset writer on the show before. So we talk about breaking story, how you get sharp with your joke writing, living in a comedy room, and also how you take all of those skills onto the set of a feature film to punch up and rewrite and support the film on a daily basis. It's a great one. Yeah, and I think probably she hasn't been on the podcast for like seven years or something, so... I think some of our newer listeners will have no idea who she is, but she's been a friend for a while and she kind of made her break, her big break with a YouTube series about Adult Wednesday Adams. So it's cool to see how her career has progressed quite a lot. And it's kind of a textbook case of going from YouTube to studio film. A hundred percent. I feel like when we first had her on, you had a real aha moment. I feel like it was like a one of the first times on the show that you were like, oh, this piece of advice. We were talking about pitching or breaking story or something, and it became like a cornerstone of the things that you repeat from previous guests. But also, mm-hmm. like, I think, you know, every once in a while we'll have those little moments with a guest with, that keep us going, right? Where you're like, oh, this is the sort of show that I would love to listen to if I wasn't also making it. You know, or I will love listening to it as well. But you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm so grateful to be a part of this. And I think that this is I'm getting a, a ton of value out of it. And I hope our listeners do as well. And I feel like I saw that in you in her first episode. Yeah, which was episode 22, by the way. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. Then she was on episode 94 and now on 365. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, that want to feel yeah, old. There are some guests that. Not only are they smart and they have insight into how things work, but they're really good at understanding mm-hmm. the secrets that yeah. they've discovered and yeah. can share them with us, especially craft wise. You know, on occasion we'll get a good, good some good business advice, like Steve Desmond's uh, hack for getting any agent on the phone is a, is a fun business hack. But 
the I think the advice that's useful to everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what level you're at, is how to break a story, how to come mm-hmm. up with a, a character arc, how to do those things that are important, no matter what part of your career you're in. And I think she she's great at that stuff. And she gave us some real nuts and bolts advice today on breaking story and on probably my favorite part of the conversation is just the nuts and bolts of how to uh, leverage some of your screenwriting friends to help you make scenes funnier, like Mm -hmm. literally like in a very technical way. So yeah, I really enjoyed talking to Melissa about that. I hope you enjoy listening to it. But before we talk to Melissa, I am dying to know, Matt, I haven't talked to you since uh, 15, since 10 seconds ago. I haven't seen you since yesterday. I haven't recorded a podcast with you since three days ago. So I really need to know, what have you been working on lately? Yeah, yeah, we have, we, boy, it feels like the podcast is a full-time job right now. Um, maybe because we were slacking for so much of the year. Yeah. But um, we, we got such a buffer now. I feel like we got like ahead four episodes. Yeah, if only we had the cash to go who on knows? vacation. Yeah, um, who knows what's going on in the world at this point <laughs> well, by the time this episode comes out? Yeah, yeah. well, so... Uh, the other night, I went over to Stu Pollard's house. He's a producer. He's been on the show. He has an awesome class on film financing that you can take from Film Independent every once in a while. And also, um, if you Google him, he has like an online course you can take as well. Anyway, great stuff. Old Buddy, an incredible burping collection. Just like incredible. So we had a few drinks. We were talking. I was over there to ask for some advice. And we were talking about the feature that I'm working on. Another guy had come over. And we somehow got on this topic of if Steven Spielberg wanted to direct your movie and you get paid a million dollars or whatever, would you take it? And like I said, I'd had a few incredible bourbons. So in the moment, I was like, I don't know. No, I don't think so. And they were like, yes, you would. You'd be an idiot not to. You know enough about the business to say yes, because it would create all these other awesome opportunities for you. You would take it. I'd kill you if you didn't take it. Right. Which they're right. Of course, you, you know. That that's certainly what anyone would do. But so I woke up the next morning thinking about that experience and the question within the question of like, what is the price for your screenplay or your passion project? At what point are you willing to to give that up to sell that out? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And I woke up thinking about the feeling that I had in the moment of saying, no, I, I wouldn't sell this movie. and so. If you ignore the the pie in the sky dream of literally a million dollars in the world's greatest genre director, the man who invented blockbusters directing your movie, literally the best case scenario for a screenplay. If you bring that back down to earth into something more feasible, right? Say you get a hundred thousand dollars or you get, you know, half a million dollars or whatever, and maybe it gets made. I guess what I'm saying is, is that feeling of like, no, I'm going to do this one is, is quite potent. It's quite real. And so like, I don't know what my personal threshold would be like financial security for the rest of my life um, and a meaningful career forever is, is great and is important to me and what, what I'm aiming for. Um, but kind of shy of that, I guess I don't know how to get those other things without doing this movie. Well, let me ask you just from a real practical sense, when you wrote 
this script that you're working on. And I know you got mm-hmm. notes from people and you rewrote it and you changed it and you did, you know, you're doing your mm-hmm. in development on your passion project script. Like, can you, do you know how you would shoot every scene? Yeah. As a director, have you, have you pictured everything? You know yeah. how you'd cast it, you know what it would sound like? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess, so do, is it, it's important for you for the story to be told in the way that you're picturing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is an interesting thing you're uncovering, perhaps. Could another person direct this movie and do it well? Could the Daniels step in and make an awesome movie off of this screenplay? Could Steven Spielberg or, or somebody unknown? Yeah. I don't totally believe in the like, this is the only person who could have made this film. They're the only person that could have made that version of the film for sure. But there are a lot of really talented filmmakers out there who would put their own spin on things. But I guess what I'm really saying is that like I'm standing up for myself and standing up for my need to make a movie, this movie. I've collaborated with a lot of people. I've sold a lot of shows. I've diverted my career into making a living and making sure that I'm doing all this other stuff that supports me. I've sold out is what I'm saying. And I have a lot of friends and a lot of regret about how much time it's taken me to make this movie. And so it was just a kind of an eye-opening experience of being like, oh no, like I'm, I have to do this. I'm going to do this. And it's, it would have to take you know, something pretty astronomical to deter me from it. Well, that's good. Yeah. So have you had that feeling before? Where where are you? How does that strike you? I don't think I'm like most directors. I'm not, I have zero interest in like being an auteur filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Not zero interest. I would love to be an auteur filmmaker, but I don't have really the discipline for the writing side side of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's never really been something that I've seen as like a realistic pathway for me, unless I happen to direct some super successful movie and I teamed up with a writer that was just writing things for me and sure. had the same sensibilities or something. So, I, just as a tiny sidebar, there's plenty of filmmakers who don't write their own stuff. Ridley Scott being a very good example. Right. But would you think, do you consider him an auteur filmmaker? Yeah. Yeah. Aliens may be my favorite movie. It's like Alien or Fargo. I guess, I don't know. I just think of the auteur filmmaker as having to have originated the idea in some way. But you don't think so at all. I think Ridley Scott's one of the greats for sure. And and the reason I bring him up besides being one of my personal favorites is um, that he came up in commercials. To me, it's not like... An Orrin Kaplan film like is not has never been like the important part of it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I... I really love the collaboration and I guess right now I'm doing this audible show, you know, that I talked about mm-hmm. in this episode and we don't have the production. Like if we set, finish the whole show and finish writing it, there's like zero guarantee that I get to be involved in the casting and the recording and the editing and the anything. Mm-hmm. So to me, I have kind of sold out on that. Now, of course this show isn't the, like my stamp, my directing stamp that's going to define me. I'm doing it with a friend and it was really designed to be more of a gateway to creating a show t- to get to direct TV. I, if I had a lot of money, like a substantial amount of money that would change my life, or if it was a really big, if, it, if someone was like, hey, we have $5 million for your indie feature, but you can't direct it, but you can be just a producer on it. 
you know, unless it's like about my childhood or about some mm-hmm. incredibly personal thing to me, I probably would be okay with sure. getting just, yeah. you know, a little bit, the $10,000 or whatever, plus some ownership right. and all well, those, those other things. And I think the, the, the more practical point is like, Hey, you have other screenplays you could be writing, right? Like there are other ways you could be producing other things. You could be directing other things that like to Melissa's point later in the show, you have to have a lot of irons in the fire. And I think that that's all true, but I guess the, I think the difference between you and I in our current situation is like my ambition to make a movie like more I think there are more career stakes for me in terms of making a movie than there are for you right now right like your commercial career is going great and mine's fine you know but I feel yeah, you the, have a hunger for uh, yeah the, the yeah. narrative feature to be working yeah on. yeah yeah and, and and also that I know that the buzz that I have the notoriety that I have I can feel it fizzling you know it's just you have to stay current you have to be putting things out there and like you know I, I I'm hungry that's exactly right yeah, yeah I'm hungry in a different way I will say my my one last story and then we'll, we'll get to Melissa is old listeners will know I was attached to this show Warigami uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago uh, that was about pretty awesome like martial arts show where this these people had the ability to turn paper into any material and they could fold a ninja star and throw it at someone and it would cut them up and they can make a samurai sword out of paper and it would cut people they they use paper as a weapon and i was very involved in the development of the show in the pitching of the show and i was in the writer's room to some degree i was kind of between jobs like popping in there and the idea the reason i was involved in it is because i was attached to direct the whole show and we ended up selling it to a canadian company cbc and they had this mandate that they had to use canadian directors in order to make the money work and so i got taken off as a director i still got an ep credit but it definitely took my interest in that show from like a hundred to less than five percent you know Mm -hmm. um and in hindsight, it's not on my resume. I don't talk to people about it. I, you know, I saw it, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but yeah, the fact that I lost the directing involvement really diluted my whole interest in the entire project. And uh, I could see that if you have a script and you sell it, let's say even for a hundred thousand sure. dollars and people are going to make it for $10 million or something, or even $1 million that you you're still interested, but at some point it's, it's not your baby anymore. And right. Right. That maybe a lot of people wouldn't want to just sell their babies. Yeah. Well, and I, I have sold my babies and I've seen a lot of other people sell their babies. And I want a baby. Well, cool. Well, I'm glad that you are believe in your movie and believe. And yeah, I think look, it's realistically. More, it, it's less that I believe in my movie and more that I, I feel like like I, I'm, I'm done procrastinating. Well, good. I can't wait to see if you make the movie this year. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> well, let's talk to Melissa. Let's see if she can give us some tips on uh, turning our writing career to 11. After we talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash just shoot a pod is a place where you can throw us a buck or two to keep the show going. Or 20 bucks if you want to get it. Sick ass. Just shoot it. Podcast hat. And by the way, 
the podcast part is kind of small because like it's designed so that if people see you on set and just says just shoot it and you can just point to the hat and then they'll just shoot whatever the camera's pointing at mm-hmm. it's very convenient saves you at least three words every hour or so uh, of set time um so yeah twenty dollars just shoot it hat you're helping us pay to keep this podcast alive so we appreciate it patreon.com slash just shoot a pod you're the best and now on with the show 
and maybe Tim, maybe Tim Wilkheim, maybe not. There's a lot of mats. A lot of mats. Three white mats. And I remember you, <laughs> you were very gracious. You had a nice time and you were, you were like, um, I overheard a lot of Star Wars talk in the bathroom. I think I'm going to head out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do remember that feeling like, oh, I think I'm the only. <laughs> you were one of like. Only woman. Three here, or four. Unless it's like with their, with their boyfriend. Yeah. Or, and like counting Oren yeah. and my wife. <laughs> I do think we had one female guest that yeah. said, oh, I heard Melissa Hunter is going to be on the panel. So yeah. Anyway, I was like, oh, we, we need I, to shake this up. We need to fix this. This is an issue. <laughs> yeah. But so I think the second time, maybe you had written on Maya and Marty, maybe yes. Santa Clarita diet. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I was still pretty new, I feel like, when when I was on that panel, like a brand new TV writer. But yeah, but it was like Adult Wednesday Adams was kind of your big thing. Mm-hmm. It was like this viral video sensation. You got a cease and desist from the actual Adams family. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then Uncle you're a, himself. a TV writer. You kind of broke yeah. into like t- writing on stuff that's on TV for real. And then mm-hmm. we got your bio today, which is 2023. I don't know how many years later. Um, can I read your bio out loud? Is that, am I allowed to? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Melissa is a writer and actor who has written for the Disney plus slash Marvel series, She-Hulk, ABC's Home Economics, and the Netflix series, Santa Clarita Diet. She was the onset writer and an actor in the action comedy movie Shotgun Wedding, starring two important Jennifers, Lopez and Coolidge. And that's it. It's two sentences uh, and none of the credits from your last two appearances on the show even appear on it because I feel like it's you, you've kind of leveled up so much, you know, since adult wednesday adams even though adult wednesday adams was probably like the first thing that got you it's like it's gotta be it's a copy and paste error that shitty boyfriends the show that melissa and i worked on together oh yeah it's, it's clearly that, just that like a typo or something yeah 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 she has a separate bio for yeah 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 it clarifies why you can't find it online anymore also <laughs> Like many of my things. But don't you guys find that the more successful you are, the shorter your bio is? Like Tom Hanks' bio is, uh, he is Tom Hanks, right? Mm -hmm. Uh Mm -hmm. You know, Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler directed, like wrote and directed Creed, Fruitvale Station, and Black Panther, right? And that's it. That's Mm -hmm. that's all you need. Um, And so I feel like your bio, I'm guessing your bio five, six years ago was... Adult Wednesday Adams, shitty boyfriends, acted in this, wrote in this, went to this school, got UCB, this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I just feel like. Yeah, it's, it's pretty... I am. You're right. I am like Tom Hanks or Ryan Coogler. That's <laughs> absolutely true. Um, really, just like the three uh, yeah. touchstones of entertainment. Uh, Tom Hanks, Ryan Coogler, and Melissa Hunter. Um, yeah. No, I mean, it's nice to work on things that people watch mm-hmm. um and that it can be a little simpler it it feels simpler when i'm home when i'm like with my family at christmas and can explain what i sure. do in a way that they now understand it um there uh television there's like the, the threshold people talk about like uh the a show called threshold right like you don't mm-hmm. say oh you know i wrote on a show called seinfeld Right. You don't. Right. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Right. You know, like sometimes you have to explain things a little bit more, but like you can say She Hulk and people are like, mm-hmm. oh, I know that one. Cool. 
mm-hmm. you know, you don't, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people say it was funny. I recently was like, Oh, I write for home economics. Like, Oh my God, congratulations. It's winning so many Emmys. I'm like, Oh, I think you mean Abbott elementary. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. That, but, but it's on the same network. Sure. Yeah, to- yeah. Well, I remember when I started writing for Santa Clarita Die, I distinctly remember this where I was in a lift and that was my first, like, like I'd written for Mayan Marty before, but that was something that nobody really saw. It was a cool experience, but no one really knew what it was. And I was in a lift and you know how they're like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a writer. I was like, oh, you write for TV movies? I'm like, oh, I write for a TV show. I was like, oh, anything I might've seen. And I realized like, oh, he might've seen this show. And I was like, oh, I write for Santa Clarita. I was like, oh, I know that show. And I felt so good about it. And then for one second, I said, anything else I might know? <laughs> I was yeah. like, no, well, man. Multiple that's episodes. You're yeah. like, listen, Netflix puts out so many series that you haven't even heard of. I just had this meeting with a, like a directing duo a few weeks ago and they had their bio is like won 35 awards here, went to 12 festivals. And I was mm-hmm. like trying to convince them that like, the shorter the bio, the better you look <laughs> like the late, the less yeah. kind of gloating. But obviously it's easy. It's easy <clears throat> when you can say She-Hulk and everyone's heard of it or, or right. even just saying Netflix yeah. or Disney Plus, even if the show is or ABC, even if people haven't seen mm-hmm. the show. Mm-hmm. Do you feel now that you're basically like an established TV writer and that's it? Now life's easy. I mean, life is God. It's so easy now. I don't even know what to do with all my stress has <laughs> melted away. Um, yeah, I don't need, I fired my therapist. Um, no, it's, yeah, it, it does feel good to have had a number of shows under my belt. I feel like I go into a writer's room now. I remember going in the first season or two on shows I worked on, like feeling so nervous. And now I go in feeling excited, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's a different feeling and being on set the same way. So I think that's a new development. Um, and yeah, I feel like I, I feel like I know what I'm doing. If, if, even if it's still hard sometimes to get jobs and you have to live with the uncertainty in between jobs and all of that. But, um, you know, I feel, I feel, I feel like I'm in a good place. Do you feel like your like sense of story and arcs and like how to think about episodes mm-hmm. and all that has improved? Like that you can walk into yeah. a room and figure out if what's working and not working in a show? Yeah, I think I can. I think that's something I actually really like doing. I like problem solving. And mm-hmm. I I realize the stuff that I still struggle with is the things that I write on my own or that I create on my own where I can just get into a loop by myself of, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to push forward. But when I'm going into it if someone else's idea i'm like hell yeah man let me just pitch sure. with zero personal stakes i i like can i feel like i'm able to really see things better and i think working on shows like santa clarita and she hulk especially that have like big season arcs and stuff it's fun it's fun to put those puzzle pieces together and i think i i have a real sense of that now on a show like She-Hulk, can you tell us like what your role is? Like, do you come in and like, are you pitching jokes? Are you pitching big character arcs? Or are you like coming up with set pieces? What, like, how does... Well, it is Marvel. So can everyone that's listening to this podcast sign an NDA right now? Or 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah, um, yeah. It's only like uh, people, by listening to this podcast, yeah. we're officially signing an NDA. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I was, so I was in the room on staff. I was producer level at that time. It's funny because it came up last year, but I worked on it sure. three years ago. Yeah. I, um, I, we had coffee in person when you were like, oh, I think I might be going to do She Hulk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. It was because we got shut down. I mean, it was the March 2020 experience of everyone going home from an office being like guess well maybe i'll see you in two weeks Mm -hmm. wash your hands yeah we were remote and and then just because marvel is such a machine it just when it shut down like it was just further back in line like they couldn't push Mm -hmm. the shoot board and stuff so well and also your character is cg half of the time yes exactly so it's just a very long process with a show like that but yeah, my job was, I was in the room. I, you know, I'm not someone that was like a, con- like I don't, didn't grow up reading comic books or anything like that. So my role, like there were some people in the room that were encyclo- had encyclopedic knowledge of Marvel. And then there were some people in the room that were just like TV, right? Comedy TV writers. And that was more my role. And so I was there to like, you know, we all broke the whole thing together. Jessica Gao, who's amazing, the showrunner, she had the idea of what she wanted and and had the big ideas. And then we were just there to try to like piece it all together while also like the Marvel machine moving so fast that it's like, oh no, we can't use this character anymore. Or we can't use, mm-hmm. we can't do like, go through dimensions because there's another movie that's doing that, you know? So just be like a lot of changing and shifting and reacting, Mm -hmm. which was really interesting to be a part of. Yeah, And the show is that like, it breaks the fourth wall a lot, right? Yeah. It breaks the fourth wall a lot. And then at the end, it does this like super meta um, ending, you know, spoiler for anyone who hasn't watched it, you can pause it right now and skip for a minute or 30 seconds where she like breaks through the Disney plus app and like gets out of the app and goes into the Disney lot and yells at Kevin, who's turns out to be a robot, like an AI. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was pretty, I mean, that's pretty multiversey. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's very multiversey. It's fun. It was a fun show because it got to like poke fun at the Marvel, uh, uh, like at the liter, like you want to say machine, but like the Marvel machine and it could, you know, it being so meta, we were able to do a little bit more that I think a lot of other projects could. Yeah. You know, uh, she Hulk in my mind always has kind of occupied this world with like squirrel girl and Howard, the Mm -hmm. duck of kind of like almost this side project or side universe where the tone is just totally different. And like, you know, writers who maybe were frustrated writing, you know, serious Avengers comics or whatever could like blow off some steam. It felt like, you know? Yeah. And I, I love that stuff. I think that's where I really like writing and like reading that stuff too. It just feels more fun. So as a person who not to dig too much into She-Hulk, but like as a person who is coming at it, maybe a little bit more as an observer, were there things that you were like, you know, maybe did you have any bones to pick or curiosities, any threads you wanted to pull? No, although the, the one thing that I, because, you know, when we started 
write, writing it or before we had a bunch of homework, right? Mm-hmm. We had to like read, watch certain movies that relate to the show, but also read all these comics. And so I read tons and tons of She-Hulk comics and I could not get over how horny they draw her sometimes. Yeah, like yeah, it yeah. is so, yeah, yeah. it is so sexual. Like it is one of those things where it was just like shirts that would like grasp underneath boobs, like in a way that gravity does not um, abide. And so that was, it was funny because it is such like a feminist idea of a character. And she is such a fun, raucous character that like then the way she was drawn sometimes was a little too much for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And when you're like hired to be in the room, do you know like what your role is? Do you know like, hey, mm-hmm. we're bringing you because you we want someone that's not like the comic book nerd. We want the funny like mm-hmm. dramedy person. I think they usually have a sense of that. That's usually how a showrunner puts together a room. It's like, okay, we need mm-hmm. one person who's a joke machine. We need one person who knows all of the sci-fi rules. We need to know someone who like loves Marvel more than anything. And we need someone who's great mm-hmm. with story and all that stuff. But you kind of don't know going in what that is. Sure. And I think for me. So you sit down, you I, take stock, you scan the room. Yeah. I think it was clear in that room just because, there, there needed to be people in that room who really knew Marvel well. And so whenever there were conversations about like, we, we use a lot of like what we call like B-side characters, mm-hmm. right? As like guest stars, there was one character, Mr. Immortal, who like can die over and over again and um, mm-hmm. things like that. And so we, so whenever those conversations were going, I would just kind of like sit back and yeah, yeah. listen and, and admire how. Um, um actually, Mister Immortal, he doesn't technically die or whatever. I, I have no mm-hmm. idea, yeah, but like that sort of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and we also had an actual lawyer in the room too. We had a woman who was amazing who quit being like she was a. Oh, because She Hulk's character is a lawyer. Prosecutor, yeah. Or she not was to a, make sure you're um, not breaking NDAs or anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, and. She so she quit being a lawyer because being a lawyer sucks. Um, and she became a TV writer, and so she was able to like provide those insights as well. So it's actually a really cool, different kind of room, yeah. But then, in you know, in rooms like home economics, it's just a lot of funny people, and you're just all different experience levels, I think. like you know, there's some people who've been working for 30 years and some that are brand new. And, you know, that's the fun of that kind of room. In that case, I feel like you often hear stories of like, well, there's one person with story sense and then a bunch of joke machines. Yeah. Right? There's still an adult in the room, most likely, I guess, the showrunner. But like, you know, uh, especially if something's a really, really joke oriented, you know, mm-hmm. one person who can be the glue. And then just a lot of spaghetti against the wall, you know, spaghetti yeah, throwers, yeah, I, I guess you'd I say. I think there were, a f- yeah, I think there were, a few, you know, you think about what it takes to write something like that. It's like, yeah, someone with a good, people with good story sense, good character sense, and then jokes. And I think some people have all three. Some people have a really big, strong area. And then it's interesting to see people develop. I mean, I feel like I used to not be as strong in in like the joke hard joke realm and Mm -hmm. then you just 
aren't enough rooms. And now I feel like that's like fun. The fun, easy part is like doing the punch ups, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, my last question about like the She-Hulk room, and I I don't know if this applies to Santa Clarita also, but um, when you come into the room, like on day one, is there like Mm -hmm. a whiteboard that has like, Hey, here's the 10 episodes and here's something that needs to happen in each episode. Or is it like, we know where we're starting. We know where we're ending, but we have no idea how we get there. And like you guys start Orin's pitching. currently breaking a series is, is <laughs> yes. what is the subtext. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think with those two specifically, it's, I feel like they would usually come in with like certain flags planted in different, like, I know I want, we know we want to start it here. We won't know we want to end it here. And we know we want like these three other things to happen. Um, and sometimes they'd be like, I want this character to have this arc and I want this character to have this arc. And with Santa Clarita, it was all about like, what, what is the relationship arc of the season and all of that. So a few of those things would be figured out. And then a lot of it was then let's, uh, what I loved the way, um, Victor Fresco, the showrunner of Santa Clarita diet, he would handle things as like, what a name. It's a great name. Um, Victor Fresco. Oh my gosh. uh, Is we would spend like half, I I don't quite remember, but it was like half this 20 weeks just breaking the, the season. Mm -hmm. And then, and then we would go in and, and outline. And so it was like, it was so fun because once you got to the point of outlining you could kind of let go of the big arcs because then it's like, okay, what's the fun of each episode now that we have the characters or the character arcs and the season arcs figured out. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But just to dig into the technical sense of it, sorry, Matt and I <laughs> joke that we only talk about the things we really actually need to know. Or it's right like, now. what size, what size post-it yeah. notes? Yeah. Or do you go note cards, Sharpie, uh, number two pencil or more like, no, I'm curious because you said you break the whole season and then you start outlining. And mm-hmm. I guess I kind of thought like those two things are the same thing, like a big outline and then like a more detailed outline. But is when you say break the season, what do you do you have like do you see like separate the season into kind of acts or you say like we want them yeah. to meet in this episode? And yeah, kind of I think here? it's like, for example, if it's that. um Sheila, who's the Drew Barrymore character, wants to, or like, like her zombie arc in the one of the seasons is like, she's deteriorating and she needs to stop deteriorating like physically. But then she, her like other like emotional arc is she wants to like quit this job, like this real estate job, and branch out with Joel on her own and start their own their own thing their own real estate company and then and then with her daughter she wants her daughter to know that she's not a monster you know so let's and then all the while she has to kill people to eat and so it's like okay let's figure out what those things look like and now let's put it out on cards like just like one sentence of like uh Sheila quits her job and so that's episode that looks like it'll be probably around episode three she would quit her job so that we can get to episode five when she mm-hmm. like tries to start a business i don't know but but it's so then you you're talking about all that stuff and 
you have all these characters and so all of these notes are coming in and then you're kind of putting out basic mm-hmm. cards it well, feels no, like almost she like can't, making a movie she can't kill her boss until after she quits her yes. job or d- d- you, whatever you're scooting those things yes. around and then once they're all locked then you go yeah, into outlining. then you go into like okay let's break episode one let's break episode two but you it's easier to do that once you know the like essentials of where you're going yeah and then it's like yeah there's the next step of breaking each episode and that's like beats and then once we made sure all of the beats lined up in like a big board situation on for a tv show then we go in and like detail outline Mm -hmm. that was that was their process which which or victor's process which i really like and so let's say you were creating your own show right now Mm -hmm. and you you had to pitch it or whatever and you're just all by your, by yourself would you do a similar process or maybe with a writing partner or maybe with a writing partner <laughs> um so are you pitching a show right now is that or are you already pitched it we pitched it we sold the outline um we have an outline thanks for the pilot it's a scripted podcast for audible so we oh okay so the first step is to submit an outline 12 episode outline and then after that if we pass that, we get the pilot. And if yeah. we pass that, we get to write all the episodes. Um, so we're, we are in the outline stage. And we just in the pitch, we had an outline, but it was very loose. You know, it's like, hey, right. and then this, they fall in love, you know. And so now mm-hmm. we're trying to figure it out. And I want to not just figure out what happens, but also make it good. You know, I guess that's the part I'm like struggling with a little bit is like, you know, we can get from A to B, but I want it. You you hear like Craig Mazin talk about The Last of Us and he's like, we wanted to do it in a way that no one's ever done it before, you know? And to me, we're just trying to put the puzzle pieces together so that we can get to the end and the logic is kind of Who's we? I have a writing partner, Julie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is it just the two of you writing it? Yeah. And we have like a development exec that gives us notes, you know? Okay. Yeah. I mean... I don't know, man. That's hard. <laughs> it's hard to like write without a staff like that. Um, it's, I'm glad you have a partner with it, but yeah, I think I've just sort of gotten more into feature stuff. I'm writing a movie right now on my own and it it does feel a lot like breaking a season like that where you, it is, it is similar work, right? Where you're kind of seeing what the arc is, seeing what the beats are. And then like, once you have that, I feel like it's creating a roadmap, right? And then you kind of fill in with the fun. The fun comes next. Yeah. I mean, you hear so many professional writers just say like, well, I know it all comes out of character and I write this character and I just have her lead me, like, tell me what she wants to do next, you know? And it's like, I I mean, I love to think that that's, yeah. Yes. People also told me pregnancy was magical. So, you know, people (laughs) lie and... <laughs> I I think though if this podcast has reminded me of anything, especially over the last, we've talked to a, a, we're on a tear of talking to writers, which is kind of a funny thing for mm. us. Everyone has a different process, and so like to me, mm-hmm. it's just like figuring out what your actual process is, what you like, where you resonate, what you're good at, and it sounds like you know when you were breaking the story at Santa Clarita, mm-hmm. that you fortunately found a thing that worked for you and a way and a process, yeah. a way to do it. Right. Um, I'm curious, uh, without a staff, you said you're, you're working on a new feature. 
And you kind of have always been working on features in the background as you're a TV writer as well. Mm -hmm. But like, has it just literally become the same process with just a different benchmarks in terms of pages and act breaks? Or are there things that you do differently? A better question is, is how do you fill in the gaps if you don't have a team of people and you're the you're wearing all of the hats? What do you do? I mean, I talk to my husband a lot and say, does this make sense? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> but, once you uh, telling me like you have like a handful of friends and you'll yeah. just be like, is this a thing? Is this the phrase yeah. that stuck stood out in my mind? The reason I like rooms and I think do well in them in the same way that I like sets is I like the collaborative process of creating something. Mm-hmm. And so writing on my own while I do love it is like I love making my own thing it's challenging because I really like talking to smart funny people about ideas um and so yeah I I usually have one or two people and that I want to talk to and it's been a different process I had a baby uh seven months ago and so I have less time so I have less time to like go fuck around and talk mm-hmm. to people about ideas and mm-hmm. uh, like my friend just invited me to a writer's group and that sounds great but I just don't have the time to like read a bunch of scripts right now mm-hmm. I have to like I you so instead with this I I started talking to one friend about it and we've decided to like trade out lines and and talk on the mm-hmm. phone and stuff like that so that's what I am doing with this project and literally and talking to my managers about it and but I think a lot of it is just like reading when I get stuck, it's reading scripts that are comps and mm-hmm. watching things that are inspiring to me. And, and especially when I'm stuck in like a very specific place, like recently I was rewriting the outline. And I'm like, Oh, the intro to this character is so boring. Like I felt bored by the way I introduced this character. And I was, so I was thinking about like, I just watched a few like first half of act ones of movies that I like and was like, Oh, that's how they introduced this Mm -hmm. character. Like I watched Groundhog Day. I was going to say what movies. Yeah. Well, like some of my comps are like, cause it's a magical realism kind of movie of like Groundhog Day and Palm Springs and Mm -hmm. everything everywhere and big. Mm -hmm. And so it was just seeing like, what it's like someone going into a new unusual place basically and so so yeah it just feels like if you can narrow in on like what is it exactly that i am stuck on and then using inspiration from other people that's super valuable the modern comps i said palm springs and everything everywhere but those you're right they weren't as helpful as like big and groundhog day because those are more classic there's something that feels mm-hmm. so different about them mm-hmm. but it's like reading like when you're writing a book you want to read like the the great yeah. american novels and so it's it as like a you know touchstone I, I think also something about older work because we have more distance and we have a better understanding of like the way people have retained that Mm -hmm. it's easier to distill it down into its specific elements do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like you see you see the matrix a little bit more than if it's something from like a few years ago it's just too present you know what i mean like yeah like when i'm writing characters i always think about people i went to high school with because i can get the the single 
weird flaw or the tick or like the archetype is very clear mm-hmm. to me. Whereas like if it's, you know, a, a friend from uh, my regular life, it's people are too complex. And I think there's yeah. the distance lets you kind of simplify things. Is uh, is this an original script that you're writing on spec or is this on assignment or a pitch? Yeah, it's an original I'm writing on spec because I don't have an original feature that I've written by myself. And this was actually a show idea that I took out and pitched with some producers and it ultimately didn't sell. And some of the feedback was like, this sounds like a movie. And mm-hmm. and then I eventually realized they were right. And that there is like, yeah. it was more, I think I'm so used to everything being television now. And so once I started thinking about this story that I'd been, you know, in my head for a while that I loved, I was like, Oh, I think I know what, how I want to end this. And so that it makes sense Mm -hmm. to like redo it as a movie. So, and it's based on your TV show pitch. Yeah. It's based on that, but it took a while to sort of unravel it and Mm -hmm. ravel it back. It's like, Oh, here's this um, blanket. Can it be a shirt? And Mm -hmm. so you have to, um, it took me a while to realize that a lot of the things that I was like holding on to sure. about the idea did not work in the movie. So you have to really like that blanket to turn it into a shirt. Yeah, you yeah. do. Yeah. And I do. As you're writing this feature, are you still kind of looking for TV staff writing jobs? Like, are you kind mm-hmm. of you have a few irons in the fire? Yeah, yeah. I so I was on home economics. I went back. I took a maternity leave and then went back for like a month or so in the late fall and so then I took some I kind of decided to just like take the rest of the year to be a new mom and then in the new year I've been like yeah look open opening up to like finding a new staff job and um you know jobs that pay money (laughs) um (laughs) you know this business is just all about like having 14 irons on the fire. So I'm meeting on TV development stuff and, you know, a feature assignment stuff. And so it, you know, just seeing what, what happens, but it's nice to have something creative to keep going back to, to always have as like, this is my job right now is writing this movie, even though I'm not technically doing it for anyone else, but Mm -hmm. myself, even if it can't get made, like to have a sample that I'm proud of, in the feature space will mm-hmm. open up some new opportunities. Well, speaking of features. Ooh, segue. Let's talk about Shotgun Wedding. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you worked on that movie? Yeah. Yeah. So I um, got hired, gosh, in the fall of 2020 um, to do rewrites on the movie. Mm-hmm. And they were shooting it in February of 2021 in the Dominican Republic. And so, and is that something just uh, like your reps were like, Hey, it's going around town. They're looking for someone to work on this movie. Yeah. I had taken out a feature pitch with one, one of the production companies, Mandeville who produced it and developed a relationship with them. And then that they were looking for someone to rewrite, even though I said it, like I don't have my own, I've co-written features, but I didn't have my own feature sample. It was kind of a, unique situation where they really liked me and they Mm -hmm. thought I had the right sensibility for it. And so they put me up to the director who was open to reading a 
TV sample for the rewrite mm-hmm. and he really loved it. And then we had like Jason Moore who directed it is just the most incredible man. And we just immediately got each other. Um, and so we, so I signed on and the original writer, Mark Hammer, who's great. Uh, he was working on other stuff, so he couldn't do the rewrite. So, um, so yeah, I was hired to rewrite. I did, uh, to like I did some rewrites over a few months and then right before they started filming Jason asked me to come down to be the onset writer and to play this part genie in the movie and so it was like very whirlwind peak COVID in LA January 2021 I was gonna say yeah it's very that part was very very stressful um and did you think it was gonna happen even you said you yeah, like January 2021. Yeah. I thought it was going to happen. And because we had talked, it, it, there were unique things about the movie where mm-hmm. it was, it, it's almost with the exception of, of, I think, two scenes, it's all outside. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of people in the movie are literally wearing masks. Like the pirates are wearing masks. Like there were just things about mm-hmm. it that just made it bear. And the Dominican Republic had had like, you know, some good setups there. Mm-hmm. And so it was just, it, it was just to the point where like things were tipping, sure. but it was still, but it was still stressful. Like it was, I think it was January was when like over 65, I think could get the vaccine. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. other than that, it was, just very uh a weird time but yeah and then we just like we're in a bubble there yeah i was gonna say it's like quite literally you know it's just you and the crew yeah in the dominican republic together for exactly a few months i think it would have been less safe honestly if it had been in la or new york or vancouver because then people would be going home and going Mm -hmm. to you know with people exposing like we couldn't have any the hard part was like none of us could see our like partners no mm-hmm. one could fly down and visit which normally you can on a set so that was the hard part but it did create this bubble did um everyone's like working remotely did it ever cross like did you have the conversation of like if your partner just came down with you you know they would because it was even if even if he paid for his own own accommodations, they have to test everyone so oh, sure. much, that was like, and that's such a yeah. cost. Like we tr- we actually tried to do that. that testing cadence like, is like, no. oh, if you're testing every three days for a few months, yeah. that that adds up for sure. Yeah, that that's crazy. So you were on set, and what's an on set writer? It's more common, I think, in comedies, in movies. For some reason, they're like, we don't need the writer a lot of the time, which is very um dumb in my opinion but um but yeah so it's i'm the person on set that is sort of the shepherd of the script right so there's especially in a movie of that size it's like a 55 million dollar movie it's j-lo it's lenny kravitz it's all these big stars mm-hmm. it's action it's it, there's so many moving parts that like you no one else has time to really think about the creative of the script and so you mm-hmm. need to have someone there to do that. And so my job was to <clears throat> address any notes as it as it went on. Like once you have, especially in COVID times, like there's no like rehearsals beforehand or, you know, there mm-hmm. rarely is these days anyway. But like 
once you have all these actors and these parts and sort of things start changing and shifting and you see what what's working and what's not working I would do like minor rewrites every now you know leading up to the to the shooting we we did you know a, a table read there and I did rewrites there I ran like a punch-up room mm-hmm. on zoom to bring in a bunch of alts and then a lot of it was having alts on the day too and and some actors really liked alts and some didn't and so it's just having all of it ready in case someone wants something different mm-hmm. and then and are you, know, you feeding the alts and just for our audience who doesn't know what you mean by that yeah. like you're you have like someone is making a joke and you have like 10 different backup jokes uh, yeah jokes yeah yeah that's very common in tv uh, in tv comedy it's what you know on home ec we would just that would be the end of each day was we would write alts for the next day of shooting but yeah so it's and how do they shoot them jokes. they have the camera on an actor and they're just doing running like hey feed yeah, him the line so and they say the joke feed him the line it's usually yeah at least the way in my experience, it, first of all, it all goes through the director. Like mm-hmm. the, you, uh, like sometimes the director would ask me to go, will you go tell this to Jennifer? Or will you go tell this to Darcy or whatever? But um, it's all goes through the director. I'm sitting right by the director and um, he would be like, Hey, do we have an alt for this joke? And I would show him that he would have read read them before Mm -hmm. i was like oh there's this there's this there's this he's like that and then he would like go show it to them or or shout it to them or depending on the length of the line but it's usually comes after they know they have the original the way it is so it's like oh we have time let's or it's like oh this line is not working we have Mm -hmm. to do something else and then we melissa fix it it. yeah yeah Yeah. i'm curious about because i I feel like alts at least personally, I'm used to and comfortable with, and that's not scary, right? But mm-hmm. if someone was like, "Hey, this isn't," can you give us examples of rewrites outside of alts? You know, a location has mm-hmm. fallen through, or someone just doesn't like this character beat anymore. What What are the, for instances of of the uh, more maybe structural or or scene changes that you were making? Yeah, so it wasn't necessarily st- like it would it wouldn't sometimes it would be like troubleshooting, right? Like, okay, we actually have to lose this little seamlet. So we need this information to mm-hmm. come into the scene prior. Mm-hmm. Um, can you do a little pass on the end so that it happens or, or it would be that like one of the actors would understand why something is this way and would want to talk to me about it or talk to the director about it. And so it's like, okay, let's, they don't understand the motivation as you know, the, the mm-hmm. cliche version. So then I would go and do like a quick little pass of like, how does this sound? And, but it was never like actors were never getting pages that were brand new. It's not day. open it heart usually, surgery. It's like right. here are two new lines. Yeah. We're thinking of making this a horror film instead. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, this is my only experience on a feature. Um, So I don't know, but it feels like there's so much pressure on a feature as opposed to a television show where it's, Mm -hmm. well, there's always the next episode. And, but it's like, this is the whole thing, right? This is the story. So there was a lot of focus on like, we're not flying Jennifer back down to the Dominican Republic. So we got to get it here. Yeah. Yeah, And it's like, we got to make sure this like ending moment where they come Mm -hmm. back together really lands and that this feels emotional. And so there's like, 
there's a lot of um, scrutiny as in the day in the days and weeks leading up on certain things in a script to make sure that like this is it this is our one chance mm-hmm. to do it <laughs> I think in the same way maybe that you do with a pilot mm-hmm, but once right. you're in a series it's a little less precious I think about <laughs> movies where you have to like earn things right like mm-hmm. I, my, yeah. my the, the first movie I worked on we had an opening scene with this mom that's crying she finds out something about her kid and the feedback I got was like just opening up on someone crying is like no one's going to be sad or emotional because they don't know like anything about this person. They don't care about him. And you have to like earn mm-hmm. those things and earn those long takes without cuts and earn all that stuff. And in a movie, in a TV show, you have like all this capital you've built up over the previous episodes. But in a movie, it's like you, you're it's more dangerous to lose the audience, you know, I think in yeah. the middle of the movie. So. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was also fun creative stuff which I love doing with if you you know I feel like I got really lucky with Jason because he was so collaborative and brought me along so closely and I remember there was one day where you know we have these pirates in the movie that take everyone hostage and he was like <laughs> we, there was one guy that was cast who has such like a sweet face and it was just like kind of mm-hmm. you couldn't hate him and so he, we were kind of like, well, what if he's like the sweet pirate? And so we just mm-hmm. had like a couple of <coughs> moments where it's like all of the hostages are singing in the pool. And it's like, well, what if he's singing along, like mouthing <laughs> along, you know, and you, ca- you catch him. And so it's just like things that you discover in the moment if yeah. you're open to it. It's so fun. It can add. Yeah. Were there instances where it was like, ah, I'm not sure if this is going to work. So Melissa, can you write? some exposition in case we cut that scene or was it more definitive? Was it more clear that like this is going, so you need to fix it? Was it, I guess it was a coverage or was it uh, like a safety note or a decision? No, it would be more definitive. I think, I think with that level of like, you just kind of have to be definitive because there's no, there was no room to like try things Mm -hmm. out of like, let's just, but I, yeah, I think it was more it was more like troubleshooting production of like okay, it's raining mm-hmm. and so we actually can't shoot this scene outside anymore and we can't lose this day, so we're going to have to shoot it inside the the cabana and so now we have to like adjust mm-hmm. this for that. Mm-hmm. that, that right, sense. right. I can't believe they lost our reservation and we're in a new cabana or whatever. Yeah. 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 That classic line. Yeah. 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 Verbatim. I wanted to do before we wrap up, I wanted to steal your brain one more time because you mentioned that one of the things you did before you shot was you did like a punch up room over Zoom Mm -hmm. with some of your friends. And I'm curious, let's say one of our listeners, let's say someone like me wants to like figure out how to punch up some scenes. How do you, can you just tell us a little bit about how you set that up? Do you call up like, three or four writer friends and say, Hey, can you read this script and then join me on zoom? And then you lead them through scenes or how, what, what's the mechanics of yeah. like getting other people to help you make your script funnier? So I think it, it depends on what you need and what, how, what time people are willing to give you. Obviously with this, I got to pay the people that were coming in. So it was easy to ask for more, but, um, but that was a really fun experience for me because it was just, I have, I've worked in comedy for a long time now and I know people who are just like so good at jokes. And so I reached out to people that I thought 
would be right for it. And then the producers and the director also did. And we came together with like, I think maybe eight writers. And what we asked was like, before it started, we, I, we essentially like highlighted virtually the lines that we wanted alts for um, th- that were like, okay, we know we want, or like, we know maybe we can beat this joke or m- sometimes you want to beat a joke and sometimes you want alts for a joke. Right. So like highlighted the ones that we thought were areas. And then we also said like, we're open to other areas too. And, or like what, so we mm-hmm. asked them to read the script, look at the highlighted parts, try to come up with ideas for those highlighted parts, but then also for other parts too. So then on Zoom, we went, I sort of led it and we like went through kind of like, okay, I'm going to go to each one of these. The first one is on page five, but if there's something someone has before that, just stop me. And so I'm like, okay, page five, we have this joke. Anyone have anything? And then, you know, the fun of those rooms is like, someone will pitch something and then some that'll trigger an idea and someone will pitch something off of it. And then you get a even funnier line. And, and so I think that's, or it'll come up with like a character tick that we didn't Mm -hmm. think about of like, Oh, that would be funny if someone was just like, like always quoting, you know, thinks thinks they're romantic and are always quoting Shakespeare wrong or, you know, whatever it is that, then you can come up with as a runner. And so that's how we did that. That's awesome. Matt, have you ever done that with like a feature? Like just call it, had a Zoom and had friends? I mean, I guess you've done table reads. Yeah, I I was going to say, I'm so glad you outlined how to do it over Zoom. Because when you said eight people, eight comics, eight very funny, wonderful comics, doesn't matter how great they are, you have to have some structure to it or it's just going to be uh yeah chaotic we'll say you know what i mean so like at least giving them guide rails and then also just kind of walking through it i think makes a ton of sense that's awesome did anything make it to the end to the final product from that oh oh yeah we had a couple my friend i'll give her liz elverenly she's very very funny she said she had one about like lenny kravitz who's Jennifer Lopez's ex in the movie comes down in a helicopter and the sister's like, Oh my God, dad, by invite your ex or like, no dad invited him. It's like, wow, dad is a messy bitch who loves drama. <laughs> um, so I liked that. And then joke. my, <laughs> and then my friend Jake Weissman did this, like one part, one of my lines in the movie is like, I'm in the pool as a hostage and I'm like really into Lenny Kravitz and just trying to hit on him the whole time. And, so I, the original line was like, he's telling someone like, Hey, if you're feeling scared, it's okay. It's normal to feel scared. And I say like, hi, um, I am also feeling scared. And he added like, I am also feeling scared. It's like, I like the most scared I've ever been. It's like, I just watched the ring, you know? So anyway, so those both ended up in there. That's awesome. It's interesting. You led the punch up room and your character got all these new funny lines. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> No, I didn't. That the first one was not my line, but the second one was. Jake was like, "Yeah, I actually want to pitch on Melissa's part because I think she <laughs> needs more jokes." That's, <laughs> That's great. Very funny. That's great. Um, yeah, and then I'll say the other way in TV that happens a lot, which is, is that after the read through, like you do a read through mm-hmm. with cast or with actors, and you have writers 
like if it's in person, if I were doing it, I, I've actually done this for pilots of my own before where like actors will read it and I'll invite writers to come in and give notes, but also like I'll print out a script for them and they'll like write down jokes to send in later. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's <clears throat> um, typically the way I would do it uh, and just bribe them with pizza. Yeah, basically. And read their scripts and, um, you know, do them favors for, uh, you know, a few years as well, ideally. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, this is this is super helpful. Thank you. We haven't actually been recording this. This is mainly just me (laughs) getting tips on what the hell I'm supposed to do with this freaking show. Awesome. Do you have a few minutes to hang out with us and endorse something? Yeah. Unpaid endorsements. So uh, off mic, Melissa, you had asked if we could go hyper local and you reminded me of my unpaid endorsement. Bub and Grandma's Bread is the, the broadest that it goes. Ooh. That's that's the bakery uh-huh. that supplies many great restaurants in Los Angeles with their bread. We talked about it on the show before. Specifically, the sesame loaf is incredible. Um, but they mm. have a brick and mortar shop now in Eagle Rock that I okay. highly recommend. It's wonderful. Going even narrower, their breakfast sandwich is incredible. For breakfast, they basically just have toast or these breakfast sandwiches. You can get an onion one, a spinach one, etc. I go just egg and cheese. It is egg, mm. cheese. And the thing I'm actually endorsing is their homemade ketchup is insane. So your endorsement is if you happen to be American and you are in California and you find yourself in Los Angeles on the in east Los side, Angeles, on the east side, Atwater Village. And you get there early enough because the line's really long. It's kind of not worth your time at a certain point. So you really need to get there around eight is the sweet spot. For and you're sure. not, you don't have celiac. You're not gluten free. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. not a vegan. You want to bro, like blow $9 on eggs and bread. And homemade ketchup. And homemade ketchup. Get yourself to Bob and Grandma's. Also, uh, my baby loves that bread I was referencing. She can't oh. get enough of that sesame. The right. She's chewing on the, the, the crust. It's a wonderful time. And if you go early, it's filled Cute. with children. So, um, but it's, okay. it's like, it's not too sweet. It's a little gritty. It's not like, like I think we all think of ketchup as basically just Heinz, right? Mm-hmm. But this is like artisanal ketchup is what I'm saying. Melissa, I doubt you're going to go know. as hyper local as a uh, ketchup in a single bakery in it's, the uh, east side, but Let's see what you got. <laughs> well, it's pretty low. It's local to Los Angeles. Okay. I will say that. I can't um, wait. It is called the Theodore Payne Foundation. Is that, Are either of you familiar with the Theodore Payne Foundation? It's a plant store, essentially, but it's like for, it's a nonprofit that encourages native, like planting native plants. And like a year ago, my husband, when I was pregnant, was like, I don't like our little yard. I'm going to redo it. And I was like, okay, good luck. And then he just spent a bunch of time at Theodore Payne um, learning about every native plant there was. And now it's like, especially after the rain, I mean, we are going to have our own little super bloom in our front yard. It's just filled with poppies and it's like three different kinds of sage and desert lavender and lilac. And it just, it smells incredible. And I feel like I've been totally um uh converted to the native plant life and i feel like it changed um it changed my outlook on like california uh, and california plant life and it's pretty boring and very like 
I love late thirties bullshit, but, uh, but I'm all about it. I'll like, just like go outside and like rub, I'll like smell all the sages and like rub my hands in it. And it's the best. And theater paint, they're like so helpful there. Mm -hmm. Everything is very inexpensive. It's not like the local plant stores where everything is jacked up a bunch. Um, You can redo your whole lawn for a very inexpensive amount of money. Theodore Payne Foundation. It's fun. I like going there. They also have like hiking trails and stuff and like nature classes. And yeah, exactly. It's not just like a plant store. It has, yeah, it's like a whole little botanical experience. I will say having gone, um, you realize there are a lot of plants that we see all over the place that are drought tolerant and things like that, but yep. that aren't mm-hmm. actually native to this region That's of true. Southern yeah. California. You're, I was expecting more cacti and some succulents and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of like sages, like you were saying, and like grasses and things like that. But it, I think it helps you realize uh, how many um, foreign species there are that are just, you know, around. Kaplan. What you got? I got a really uh, an incredibly obvious one that probably everyone knows already, but I didn't mm. know about it until this week. I kind of like f- suspected it existed, but I just con- uh, confirmed it and yeah, and consumed it. Uh, and it is <laughs> the Last of Us companion podcast, oh, hosted by Craig Mazin and Neil Druckerman. I talked to you Matt, about this, and uh, the guy who plays Joel in the video game. And he also has a part oh. in the show. I, I knew that Craig had done it for a compendium show for The Watchmen where he just talked, the, he interviewed, I think, the showrunner about mm-hmm. each episode. And it was so good um, that when Chernobyl came out, like HBO was like, hey, that was a genius move. You got to do it for Chernobyl. And now they're doing it for The Last of Us. And, you know, it, it's just like the type of insight that you would get from this podcast about writing in general, like there is just like hyper specific, like, Hey, you know, when Ellie said this, we were setting this up for that, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and the episodes drop, like it's one for one. So like the second the episode comes out on HBO, mm-hmm. they release the podcast episode that talks about that episode. So um, if you just, if you're interested in how you make, how you construct like a drama thriller like that, uh, you can literally go here the my and it's based on a video game and they talk about it. like we t- took this from the game but in the game this part is in- interesting but in a show it would be boring so we we came up with this idea and I don't know if you guys have seen the show or not but the the cold open is these uh, scientists talking about what you know the doom you know what the next dangerous virus is going to be mm-hmm. and they talk about fungi and that's a thing that they wrote they were almost done filming the whole season. Um, and Craig Mason kept pitching this to Neil Druckerman because Neil Druckerman wanted this kind of more informational, like discovery style video explaining how this fungus works. And Craig Mason was like, no, I, I like, what if we just have this interview and it's these scientists talking about it and no one believes them. Um, very much like, you know, because they were trying to nod to cope to us being aware of COVID and this virus and all this thing that mm-hmm. went in, happen in the world but not have the show be connected to that in any way and so that's really smart just kind of weaving that in and he said and it only it was like two weeks before they finished filming the entire show that neil Druckerman was finally like yeah okay maybe maybe that would be a, a more interesting <laughs> way in and they did it so you know it's just it's great to see these shows that are getting like so much acclaim hearing about like all the things they did wrong you know um and how they yeah. they found way and even 
like I think the first episode originally ended when you meet Ellie, you know, the Bella Ramsey mm-hmm. character, and they realize the HBO people were like, "Hey, we're not going to care about her. Like, if we don't, like, you need to give us a little bit sure. more because we're really worried that no one's going to come back for episode two. So it, it's cool I'm to sure see. That's also something where yeah. like uh, you're trying to get an audience outside of the people who play the game. Right. Yes, so exactly. like, like if you have the context of knowing, oh, this character is important, then you care about it. But like, yeah, otherwise, otherwise it's just like death and oh, destruction, post-apocalyptic yeah. sadness. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. So I, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I kind of binged the podcast because I've been watching the show one one week at a time. Um, anyway, uh, that's that's it. Melissa, are you how, how can people follow you? Are you tweeting? Are you on do you have a public Instagram? Um, yeah, I have a public Instagram, Melissa Hunter. I'm technically on Twitter, but I'm a lurker and watching it kind of all burn down. But you can <laughs> find me there at Hi yeah. Melissa Hunter. I don't really tweet, but um, do you guys are you guys on Twitter? Still? Kind of the same situation. Um, yeah, like I, I can't tell you the last time I, I like you know I'll like something, maybe I'll retweet things, mm-hmm. but like not in any active or thoughtful way. I'm just lurking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I, yeah. Twitter changed. Kind of even before all of this, I feel like Twitter just became where you sort of got your news mm-hmm. instead of an RSS feed. But like, so if an RSS feed was just terrible, basically is what Twitter yeah. became. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think I kind of didn't notice I'd stopped using it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. But Thanks. we know a lot of comedy screenwriters like our friend Lindsay is tweets all the time. And it seems like this interesting tool you know yeah yeah i think it is for some people it never really was for me i think it was more to prom- when i was like needed to promote things but sure. um yeah right didn't ever write real zingers <laughs> I've, I've attempted some zingers that just were had zero zing to them <laughs> so i kind of gave up well awesome well you can find our podcast on twitter we're at just shoot it pod we're uh everywhere else too and i'm on instagram i'm at o kaplan and I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media, including Letterboxd, which is my new favorite. Mm. That's the only social media I really love. And I should update it more, frankly. Anyway, this episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Thanks, Noah. Uh, and you're listening to music by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.